Good morning, Cornerstone. Please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. It's my understanding that you have been in and out of the book of Acts the last few months, and uh, I was asked to preach in something from Acts 4 and 5 uh, this morning. And uh, so far, you have seen uh, uh, many things happen in Acts. You've seen the Holy Spirit descend upon the apostles at Pentecost. You've seen the apostles preach with great boldness. Uh, in Acts 3, the apostles preach once more. And in Acts 4, we see that 5,000 people come to faith. They, uh, Peter and John are then detained by the authorities. And then they are charged, the, they charge the apostles to no longer preach Christ. The apostles say no. They are then released, and the first thing the apostles do, Peter and John, is they go to the church, and then they pray. And then Luke rec records the, the character of the life of the church in Acts 4, verses 31 through 36. For now, though we'll be focusing on the second half of chapter 4, I want us to read verses 31 through 33. 31 through 33. And when they had prayed... The place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, though they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord and great grace was upon them all. Please pray once more with me. Father, we ask that you would now speak to us through your word. We pray, Lord, through the ministry of your word, that you would humble sinners, that you would exalt Christ, that he would be precious to us, and that you would lead us into the way of holiness, Father. We ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Throughout human history, and perhaps especially prevalent in our day, there has been the promotion of conspiracy theories. Webster's Dictionary defines a conspiracy theory as a theory that explains an event or set of circumstances as the result of a secret plot by usually powerful conspirators. Personally, me and my life, I hold all conspiracy theories to the same burden of proof. My limiting principle for the assessment of conspiracy theories is this. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. If you want to tell me that the moon landing was fake, or that the earth is flat, or that Paul McCartney did in truth die in the 60s, and the man we know as Paul McCartney is not the real guy, you must be able to produce an extraordinary amount, an extraordinary quantity and quality of evidence to convince me. Well, brothers and sisters, we are, as Christians, not conspiracy theorists, but we do make extraordinary claims. We claim by God's grace and power through the work of Jesus Christ, he has done a work in our life. We claim to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. We claim to have something miraculous happen to us. Our claims are quite extraordinary. Therefore, 
It's not inappropriate for somebody to ask us, prove it. Prove this extraordinary, extraordinary work has been done in your life. What is the evidence of this supernatural work of God in your life? At Emmanuel Church, one of the ways we do this is when we interview people for membership at our church, we require those members to uh, uh, share with us what, what are the expressions, what are the evidence that God has in fact done a work in their life? What's the evidence of a transformed life of grace? Well, friends, for the church in Acts, it was not difficult for them to provide evidence. It was not difficult for them to offer proof of God's saving action in their lives. Indeed, for the early church, it was patently obvious that a profound work of God's grace has been performed upon them. They had the proof. They had the signs. They had the evidence. They had the birthmarks of God's spirit. They had the family resemblance that's only seen in those who have been regenerated. Simply put, they had been saved. They had been saved and they had received God's Holy Spirit. In fact, in many ways, the book of Acts is, is something of a biography of the Holy Spirit in the days of the early church. The word for spirit, the word pneuma, it's used 70 times in the book of Acts, more than any other book in the New Testament. The author is Luke, and he uses the word pneuma more than any other New Testament writer. And 56 of those 70 times are used in reference to the Holy Spirit. So what do we have in Acts? In your study of Acts, you've already seen the apostles waiting for the pouring of the Holy Spirit. You've seen the Spirit descend upon the apostles in Acts 2. You've seen, you've seen Peter's miraculous sermon in the day of Pentecost where thousands came to faith. In Acts 3, Peter and John boldly proclaimed the gospel again. And today, we're, at, we're in Acts 4. And we're not looking merely at what's going on in the Holy Spirit's ministry in the apostles' life, but it's ministry in the life of the church. We see the Spirit's work, His work in the life of the church. And though we see this all over the book of Acts, it is seen in a pronounced way in Acts 4. So today, I want us to consider the evidence I want us to consider the evidence of God's work in the early church because it is the life of the early church that was indeed extraordinary evidence of the extraordinary power of God. The life of the early church, that is the ethos, the character, the actions, the behavior of the early church was evidence that God had done a miraculous work in each of their lives. It was clear evidence, solid proof, sure sign of God's extraordinary power. You might be familiar with Nine Marks Ministry, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. You can view this message as four marks of a healthy church because I want to go over four pieces of evidence of the Spirit's work in the life of the early church. Would you consider with me heading one, preaching? The early church was marked by preaching. Acts 4, verse 33. And with great power... The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord. Great grace was upon them all. There are several things that I can highlight about the apostles' preaching. I want to highlight three of them. I want to highlight three things that we see about the apostles' preaching in the book of Acts, especially early in the book of Acts. First, the apostles preach with great conviction. They preach with great conviction. The profound boldness of their preaching was absolutely staggering. It was spellbounding. God used their preaching to convert 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. Days later, 5,000 under the preaching of Peter. 
The point in Acts 4, we see that the authorities, they had to detain them. They had to figure out what was going on in their city. So many people professing that faith in the living God, professing that faith by the name of Jesus Christ. What I want you to notice, notice, notice the fearlessness. Notice the level of conviction, of boldness in Peter's preaching. And the way he accuses his hearers. Acts 2, verse 23. Flip over to Acts 2, verse 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of wicked men. Verse 36, chapter 2. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Chapter 3, verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are all witnesses, Peter says. Later when Peter and and John, they're on trial before Annas and Caiaphas, they say in chapter 4, verse 8, rulers of the people and elders, this is after they healed a man, rulers of the people and of the people and elders, if we are examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Can you appreciate the conviction? Can you appreciate the boldness of Peter and John? What courage! What fearlessness! Here, Peter and John, they are defying the very men that delivered Jesus over to death. Weeks ago, Peter and John would have been cowering before these men. In fact, they did. Peter denied the Lord. And notice the way these men, they respond to the boldness of Peter and John. Verse 13 of chapter 4. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. You see, friends, this boldness was astonishing. It was astonishing to the hearers of the gospel. This boldness was not natural. Indeed, it was supernatural. It didn't flow from the natures of Peter and John. A few weeks ago, these men were little lambs cowering in an upper room. A few weeks ago, Peter denied the Lord himself three times. These men were not prepared to preach with such conviction. The question is, what happened? What happened to make these men preach with such boldness, with such fearlessness? What gave such weak men, men such boldness and power? It was the resurrection power of Christ. It was the work of the Holy Spirit descending upon them. The Holy Spirit had done a work in these men's lives. His Holy Spirit was upon them. God's Holy Spirit gave them utterance. They were able to proclaim the oracles of the living God. They had been given unction to preach with authority, not their own words, but God's word. By the power of God, these were no longer fishermen. But these were viceroys of the almighty God. God's Spirit had given them conviction and it marked their preaching. And it would continue to mark the preaching of the early church. 
But notice also their preaching was not just marked by conviction, but they also exalted Christ. They exalted Christ in their preaching. In the apostles' sermon, Jesus took center stage. Every miracle performed, every sinner saved was a testimony of what Christ had done. Let it be known by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing well. The apostles took no credit. Not our own strength. This is the strength and power of God. See, friends, it was the risen Christ that formed the substance of the apostolic message. Though he had been delivered over to death at the hands of wicked men, God raised him up. And as prophesied by his servant David, God did not abandon Jesus to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Rather, he arose. And he's now exalted at the right hand of the Father Almighty. He will come to judge the living and the dead. This is why Peter can loudly proclaim in Acts 2, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. But friends, the apostolic message was not only that Jesus was the exalted one, but that Jesus was the only one. Jesus was the only one. His name was the only one given under heaven by which men could be saved. He was the only exalted Christ through which sinners could experience salvation. The apostles proclaimed the very message that we cherish today by repentance and faith in his name. Wicked people can be reconciled to God. They can have their sins blotted out. Those in bondage can be made free. The dead can truly be made alive. Empty hearts and minds and souls can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But listen, it's only through one name. It's only through the name and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12, there is no salvation or there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Apostles didn't exalt themselves. The apostles, they didn't promote some sort of therapy to help you forget about life for a while. That's not what they did. They, pre- they proclaimed the power of the crucified, risen, exalted Christ. And this preaching refused to cease. Notice thirdly about this preaching. It refused to cease. It wasn't showing any signs of stopping. Jewish leaders in Acts 4... After detaining Peter and John, they found themselves unwilling to have a charge for which they could punish them. So they ended up having to release them. But in verse 18, listen to what they say. It's the leaders speaking to Peter and John. So they called them together and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. By the Spirit's power, the apostles were resolved to preach. Cornerstone, my brothers and sisters, what does the world need today? It needs preaching. What do you need today? You need preaching. You need the proclamation of God's word. You need the proclamation of God's truth. What must mark Cornerstone Baptist Church? It must be preaching. As it was for the early church, as it was for the church in Acts, bold, loving, and faithful proclamation of Christ. It's an extraordinary evidence. It's an extraordinary evidence of the extraordinary work of God in their lives. Church was marked by preaching. 
Secondly, they were marked by prayer. The early church was marked by prayer. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, he, he speaks more about prayer than any other New Testament writer. Uh, he references prayer about 25 times in his gospel account, the, the book of Luke. And he references prayer about 30 times in the book of Acts. And as a general rule, uh, in Luke, he's, he's speaking more, to, more towards personal and private prayer. While in the book of Acts, we see more corporate prayer. We see the importance of prayer in the life of the church. My friends, by definition, a Christian church prays. A church that doesn't pray is not a church. And a church that prays little is sick. But rather, my friends, a healthy church, a healthy church that makes regular practice and priority of prayer. In Acts 4, what is the first thing the saints do when the apostles return to them? What's the first thing they do when Peter and John return to them and tell them of what happened? They pray. They pray. They make their needs and their hearts and their concerns known to the God, the only person who can do a thing about it. They declare their needs to God. They pray. And verse 24 through 30 of chapter 4 captures this marvelous prayer of the infant church. And what I find fascinating when we read this prayer is the, 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 the early saints, that they only do two things in this prayer. They do very little in this prayer. They do two main things. First, they acknowledge God's sovereignty. They acknowledge God's sovereignty and they ask for boldness. Notice first, they, they acknowledge God's sovereignty. This plain recognition of God's character actually takes up the majority of the prayer. The prayer in our English Bibles is about 150, 155 words. 70% of those words are dedicated to acknowledging God's sovereignty. First, they acknowledge that God is sovereign over creation. Verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Friends, this was no rote recitation. This wasn't a, a rote, just, just recitation of just a nice little prefix to a prayer. This was a confession of allegiance to the creator and king of the cosmos. These believers knew first and fundamentally that God was absolutely sovereign over everything. Over everything, over all creation. And by divine fiat, it was he who orchestrated and governed all things. Church, she believed this. This is why they don't merely acknowledge God's dominion over creation and the water, the land, and the fish, and the birds of the air. Rather, these believers, even amidst increasing and intensifying heat of persecution, they acknowledge God's sovereignty over wickedness. They acknowledge God's sovereignty over evil. Acts, 25, Acts 4 verse 25. O sovereign Lord, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by his Holy Spirit, why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's a quote from Psalm 2. And then they continue, for truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand 
whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's an extraordinary prayer. That's an extraordinary prayer. You see, these believers had a big God. They worshipped a big God. They believed in a God who was in control of all things. Theirs was a God who could see all. Theirs was a God who knew all. Theirs was a God who planned all. Theirs was a God who would not permit anything to pass that was not in accordance with his holy will. They knew that great truth of Proverbs 16, that where the lot is cast into the lap, it's every decision is from the Lord. It's every decision. Solomon, Solomon was trying to talk about the most random thing he could think about, a lot being cast. It's every decision is from the Lord. It's from his divine will it happens. They knew that God had numbered every one of their hairs. They knew that great truth of Romans 8, that they knew that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Cornerstone, here's the rub. I know you believe in a sovereign God. I know you believe in an almighty God, but we must ask ourselves, how sovereign? How mighty? Over what is God sovereign? And how, how mighty is he to do? Is he mighty to do what? Is he just mighty enough to bring about a little more good than bad? My friends, is your theology big enough to contain the God of Scripture? The God who can lead these believers to say, hey, these men that killed our Jesus, Herod, Pilate, Gentiles, and the Jews, this happened according to your plan. And the heat we're feeling right now, God, we know this is happening according to your purpose. And you have a reason for this. My friend, do you worship a sovereign God or not? This was a God who delivered his own son to die at the hands of wicked men. And ours is a God who permits his children to endure untold persecution, and sorrow, and calamity, and trial. My friends, we must realize that we live, we breathe, we suffer, we worship. All of these things we do before the face of an almighty, sovereign God who governs all things. And nothing happens apart from his will. And listen, we should not just accept this as an inconvenient truth of the Bible. Rather, we should celebrate it. We should celebrate God's sovereignty. We should revel in it. We should rejoice in it. My brothers and sisters, let us cultivate a heart that loves God's sovereignty. And submits ourselves to it and confesses it together as his people. Let us rest securely in a God who is sovereign, even, and I say especially, in suffering, especially under persecution, especially through death and trial. These believers, they acknowledge God's sovereignty in their prayer, but they do something else. They request more boldness. They request for boldness. We've already seen the incredible boldness of Peter and John, right? We've already seen their unbelievable, staggering levels of, of fearlessness before their hearers. Yeah, this church prays for more. They pray that God would leverage the threats of the authorities to produce more boldness within the church. Listen to what they say in verse 29. And now, Lord, 
Look upon their threats and grant to the first servants who continue to speak your word with all truth and boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Notice the focus of the prayer. Notice the priority of this prayer. They don't ask God to take away their persecution. Instead, their highest priority is that the gospel of Jesus Christ would advance and that it would advance with all power and boldness. My Christian friend, what marks your prayers? When you lift up your knees before God and you expect that he hears them, what types of needs are you lifting up? Cornerstone, as you gather and pray for one another, what marks your prayers? What are the priorities of your prayers? Is it your comfort? Is it material or career success? Is it removal of sickness or trial and hardship? My brothers and sisters, listen, it's not wrong to pray for those things. It certainly is not wrong to pray for those things. And this prayer doesn't teach that believers should want or pursue persecution. Neither does it teach that it's ever wrong for believers to ask God to remove persecution. But what does it teach? We should earnestly seek to align our priorities. To align our priorities with the same concerns of the early church. We must plead with God that we would continue to speak the word with all boldness. This is God's will for us. We need to desperately seek and beg God to advance his gospel. And we must do so. Because we know this world is perishing. This world and our times are passing away. And we need to see ourselves in the times correctly. And we need to know and understand what we've already seen. And that there is no other name under, under heaven by which men are given to be saved. And we should long. For the proclamation of God's gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to expand with all boldness. That it would advance in all power. This should make the form, the substance of our prayers. But Tim's prayer was so encouraging. What did he start with? Gospel mission. The unleash. Those who haven't heard the gospel. Those in our land who don't know Jesus. These must be first and foremost in our prayers. As it was with the early church. This prayer was extraordinary evidence. It was extraordinary evidence of God's extraordinary power in the life of these saints. Friends, would you consider next with me? So our next mark of this healthy church, this next evidence of extraordinary power, unity. This church was marked by unity. It was marked by, indeed, extraordinary unity. First, notice how they prayed with one voice. They prayed with one voice. Luke records this. And I don't think he means this, that this was some sort of written prayer that they were reciting or some sort of memorized prayer. Rather, probably one person spoke on behalf of the whole congregation, but he did so in union with the spirit of the entire group. In one voice, they lifted up their voice to heaven and said, Sovereign Lord. This is why Cornerstone, when Pastor Tim... Pastor Charlie or Pastor Mark are praying up here. They don't do so by themselves. It is not a monologue. It's not one person directing God. Rather, it's the entire church lifting their needs. The only person who can fulfill those needs and hear those needs. 
It's why when Pastor Charlie or Pastor Mark or Pastor Tim, when they say amen, you shouldn't be silent. You should respond with a resounding amen because they don't speak for themselves. They speak for the entire voice of the church. In one voice, they lifted up their voice to heaven. But our text also says they lived with one heart and soul. Look at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed, which was thousands, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. One heart, one soul. This was not uniformity. The idea wasn't that every one of these saints had the exact same opinion on every single little thing. That's not the case. Rather, this is something of what what Paul would later write as the, the unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For these believers, their oneness was built upon the firm foundation of the gospel. Christ the Son had died for them. The Father had adopted them, and He was their one Father. The Spirit had united them. Hence, they now belong to an entirely new family. They were at one with one another. They were had one heart and one soul. Christian, do you realize this? God's people, they're not like a family. They truly are a family. If you're a Christian, you're a part of the truest family you'll ever be a part of in the church. The communion of saints is our heavenly kinfolk. Cornerstone, do you know why it's so easy for me to love you? We don't have much shared experience, you and I. But it's because you're saints. Because God's spirit has united us. We worship the same risen Christ. And we have the same spirit uniting us. And we've been all adopted by the same father. That's why I can say with all sincerity, I love you. And I hope you love me too. Our brothers and sisters, the church is our family. And because of this, our affections for our brothers and sisters in Christ should swell. And it should swell with even greater love and greater sincerity than that for your own flesh and blood. So God's word teaches. You belong to a new humanity, to a new, commun- a new com- community. The love you ought to share with Christians should intensely outshine any fealty you feel for your family, any fealty you feel for your country. And my friends, I hope you have a lot of love for those. I hope you have the most love for your family. I hope you have the most love and commitment to your country. But listen to this. Those loves must pale. They must pale in comparison to your love for Christ and your love for the people of God and your love for the gospel that unites you all. God's family should surely engender a greater unity and a greater love in our lives than that of flesh and blood. We should be a people marked by extraordinary unity because it is such unity that is extraordinary evidence of God's extraordinary power. You see, we make extraordinary claims. How do we prove it? They will know that you love me and that you belong to me, Jesus says, in how you love one another, in how you show your unity. We must be able to show this to the world. You might be wondering, what should this unity look like? Zach, how should I express this unity? Well, there's 10,000 ways. There's 10,000 ways you should express this unity. I want us to draw our attention to what this text calls us to. And that is generosity. 
we must show our unity and our generosity. Great theologian Peter Parker, also known as Spider-Man, he says, with great power comes great responsibility. That's actually true. With great power comes great responsibility. The Bible would have us believe that with extraordinary power comes extraordinary evidence. With great power comes great unity. And listen, with great unity comes great generosity. Look at verse 32. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. but They had everything in common. And then verse 34 There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought they brought the proceed his pro excuse me they brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Text says they had everything in common. It says there wasn't a needy person among them. It says they shared their proceeds. Now, friends. We know that the book of Acts is a history of the early church. And it is not a treatise for any political system. And any person, as many do today, who would say that Acts 2 or 4 teaches or promotes socialism, that person is bearing false witness. That's not what this text is teaching. This text, the the, the generosity we see in the early church was entirely voluntary. The distribution of wealth under socialism happens under pain of the sword. Those are categorically and completely different things. This text does not promote socialism. This text doesn't promote a welfare state. This text doesn't abolish the concept of private property. But brothers and sisters, I'm not here to tell you what this text is not. I'm here to tell you what this text teaches, and that is that Christians give. Christians give. Christians give generously. Christians give sacrificially. Christians give out of their increase to one another. Christian, a Christian, a needy Christian, is a contradiction in terms. Because a needy Christian who is covenanted and belongs to a church will have all of his legitimate needs met by that church. There's no such thing as a needy Christian. And moreover, to be a Christian is to be generous. It's to be generous with your money. It's to be generous with your resources, to be generous with your home, to be generous with your time, to have all things in common is what we're called to. If you've ever filled out a job application, you've seen the phrase core competency. What's a core competency? A core competency is something like a qualification, some sort of some, some uh, uh, competency you, you must have in order to perform that job. So a job application might say you need to be good at Microsoft applications. You must be able to excel in written communication or public speaking. But brothers and sisters, generosity, like love, like joy, like peace, like forgiving one another or any of the fruit of the Spirit is a core competency to following Christ. It's not optional. To be a Christian is to be generous. It's the Apostle John who makes this actually absolutely clear. In 1 John 3, verse 16 and 17. By this we know love, that he laid down down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So here's John saying, this is how we know love. 
that you lay down your life for your brother or your sister in Christ. And then you may be thinking, I can do that. If called on, I could probably show that great and greatest performance of love and give my life for my brother in Christ. But what does John say in the next breath? He makes love deeply practical. In verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. My friend, John minces no words. If your heart is closed off to the needs of other Christians, you will go to hell. If your heart is closed off to the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ, they're not your brothers and sisters. You have no place among them. You need a work of grace in your heart. The Bible makes clear, clear that God's love does not abide in you. To be a Christian is to be generous. It is a core competency. We must be wildly sacrificial with our money. We must be wildly sacrificial with our time and our resources and our houses and everything, all of the above. The apostolic precedent and example of the early church demands our generosity. By God's grace, Cornerstone, though I've only known you some months, I already have heard and seen of the several ways that you are faithful to this text. Surely you love one another. Surely you are one with one another because you are so generous with one another. You are so prepared to lay down your lives for one another, not just in physically giving up your life for somebody, but actually sharing your increase, sharing your proceeds, sharing your needs, sharing your time. You are a generous church. I will leave you with the thousand ordinary and extraordinary expressions of this generosity to, to work that out amongst yourself. What does this look like? But I only ask, Christian, just ask yourself now. Ask yourself this week, how can I show generosity to my brothers and sisters in Christ? How can I show extraordinary levels of generosity to my brothers and sisters in Christ, to my spiritual family, because I know such generosity is evidence. Such generosity is evidence of God's extraordinary power in the life of the church. What do we have in Acts 4? What we have in Acts 4 is a narrative account of God's extraordinary power. God's extraordinary work, the Spirit's extraordinary power. And what should be plain to us by now is that God's power never leaves people unaltered. It never leaves people unchanged. When people truly encounter the living God, they are always changed. When they come to know him savingly, their lives are always transformed. God's people are said to have been once inhabitants of the domain of darkness to be transferred into the kingdom of Christ. This involves change. This involves repentance. This involves an explosion of new affections. This involves a distinct break from the world you see. If you claim the name Christian, you have drawn your line, you've drawn your line in the sand. You're saying, I'm no longer lost, I'm found. You're saying, I'm no longer blind, I can see. I no longer have a cold heart, I have a heart of flesh. I no longer have a stony heart, I've been given life. I've been changed. And God's spirit is at a work in me, and he's united me with a people. 
And the world, as the Pharisees, as they looked at these men, at Peter and John, and they were astonished by their boldness, the world will look at me and be astonished by how I love the church. They'll be astonished by how I love my church and my church loves me because this is an extraordinary display, brothers and sisters. This is an extraordinary evidence of God's power. The world will marvel how the church loves its members and how believers express their unity and express and display God's work in their lives. It should be unexplainable. It should be perplexing to the lost how we care for one another, how we love one another, how much time we spend with one another, how we're concerned and our hearts are angled towards one another. This should be absolutely perplexing to the world. And it should shine a light on Christ as it did in Acts. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us and that you would cause the word of your power, the word of your truth to sink deep, deep, deep into our ears and into our hearts. Father, that you would change us, that your spirit would have its way with us. Lord, that it would be absolutely clear that we have been changed by the almighty God. Lord, in our love for you, in our worship, in our fealty to the kingdom of Christ, but Lord, in our life together. For surely you have done a work among us. You have united us to the same Lord, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Father, please help us to express the same evidence, these same marks that we see in the early church. Lord, that you would bless us with preachers, men that are faithful to proclaim the oracles of God. Lord, to not preach their own thoughts, to preach your word, to preach the truth in season and out of season. Lord, that we would be marked by prayer. That we would approach you as what you are, and that is our Heavenly Father. And Lord, that you would give us a sense of our unity. And that we would express this unity in 10,000 ways, but Lord, particularly our generosity with one another. Not just in our funds and our money, but Lord, in our time, in our the space in our brains, the love we have for one another. May we be generous. Father, we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.